Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, our attentiveness to your word this morning, that we are in a place and in, a, in an age and in a time when your word is available to us in its full counsel, and we are uh, surrounded by men and women who care enough to spend time studying it, Father. I'm always thanking you that for that, Father. As, a, as someone who spends time in teaching in many different places, Father, I, I can't help but but be reminded of the fact that so many places today, so many cities, so many churches, so many homes aren't with your word. They aren't listening to it. They aren't attentive to it. So, Father, how easy could it be that we might fall into one of those places, but yet here you are bringing us to, uh, to the word again, giving us a chance to study it again. Father, I pray that we're just making the most of each of these opportunities. We're not taking them for granted. And that we will listen carefully to you today. I pray, Lord, that that would come out of the teaching, uh, out of the text, that your, your counsel would be on our minds, not human intellect or uh, wisdom, but purely from the Spirit, Lord. And I pray you would use me so that we would hear these things clearly, for we do love you and desire to know your will. And we want to put aside all the things of this life. We want to be focused only on you and what it means to serve a living God who has saved us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Judges 15 again. Still looking at this brooding, impulsive hero, Samson. It occurred to me as I was thinking about our lesson this week that Samson was the original superhero, wasn't he? Isn't he just like the kinds of characters you see developed now in comic books, at least in some ways, right? He's the, he's the guy with all the superhuman strength, but he has that dark side of him, and his personality isn't all right. He's very much like the Hulk in that respect, only he doesn't have the, the cool tan. In fact, another thought came to my mind as I was thinking about him. When you look things up on the story of Samson, you always find pictures, or you often find pictures of him. And, of course, how do people imagine this guy? Yeah, kind of a mixture between Fabio and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Which is totally unbiblical because he was able to do what he did when God supernaturally empowered him. It wasn't his muscles that did the work. It was the spirit in him. So as he's moving huge objects in ways that normal humans can't do, it's not like the pictures always make him look like he's Mr. Universe doing it. It's just some weak guy, normal looking, I assume, for the most part, who just does something and you have to shake your head and look at it a second time because you can't imagine how that just happened thereby giving glory to God, who is the source of that power. We have to keep that in mind. Anyway, as I said, a brooding but impulsive hero. Last time we saw him, at the end of 14, he had run out on his own wedding after his bride betrayed him. After drinking wine, probably for the first time, Samson let the drink go to his head, and he made this foolish bet with the wedding guests that they couldn't answer the riddle that he posed during the week of the wedding festival. And his guests didn't like not being able to win, so they didn't play fair. They pressured his wife to get the answer out of Samson, which she did. And the result was a humiliation for Samson at the end. And then, in his anger, he leaves the wedding feast. He goes and kills 30 Philistines so that he can take their fine clothes and use that to repay the debt that he incurred through this bet. And after all that, he storms off back to his home, leaving his bride at the altar. Now, we understood from the text we studied last time that the Lord has been working behind the scenes through all of this stuff to prevent the wedding of Samson from taking place. Or at the very least, what he wanted to prompt in Samson's heart was a return to the task that God had appointed to him, to defeat the Philistines, not to marry them, not to make friends with them, but to destroy them because they were oppressing Israel and God was ready to remove that oppression. 
But nonetheless, there is a detail that we have to address now in the story of Samson that the story has to address. And the detail is he's betrothed. He's still betrothed to a woman. And his storming off prevented the completion of the wedding, but it doesn't undo the betrothal. He still has an obligation to keep this covenant. And he probably still has some feelings for the woman as well. And then there's the matter of his own honor if he didn't follow through with the covenant. Because in that culture, very much unlike the culture we now have, I think, personal commitments, especially covenants, were not to be broken. So Samson has an obligation here to go through with the covenant, to go through with this wedding, even though he stormed off. And that's where we go now as we enter into chapter 15. Samson is going to travel back to Timnah, back to his bride's home, to complete the wedding that he should have completed earlier. At least covenantially, he should have completed it. That's where we go now. So turn to 15. We'll start in verse 1. But after a while, in the time of wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go into my wife in her room. But her father did not let him enter. Her father said, I really thought that you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. Samson then said to him, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson returns to Timnah now after a while. And we don't know how long after a while is exactly, but we have a couple of clues in the text. First, this return happens, we're told, at the time of the wheat harvest. Wheat is harvested in late spring, early summer in this part of the world. So this is like late May, early June maybe, something like that. Secondly, if we assume Samson entered the vineyard back in chapter 14 when he was first going down to Timnah in order to get some of the grapes off the vines, even though he wasn't supposed to eat them, according to his vow, but if he was going in for that purpose, well, grapes mature in the early fall. So this would be maybe six to eight months later, if, if my assumptions are correct. And then we're told, he's, so he's going back now after some delay, after a while. He's taken a while to cool down. Then when he goes, notice he visits his wife carrying a goat. Every husband or boyfriend can identify with what Samson is doing right now. He is bringing the ancient equivalent of chocolate and flowers. Because nothing says I'm sorry like a goat. So Samson thinks to himself, I'm going to go to my wife, and then he adds, in her room. Now, there's some language here that's very important to understand. What he means literally is he wants to go in and consummate the marriage. That's what he's saying. But that's what he was supposed to do. I mean, the point is he had been betrothed. The next and last step to formally forming this marriage is to go and have the wedding night, which is where he was headed before but gave up before it happened. So, obviously, what he's assuming is his wife, the wife-to-be, has continued to honor her side of this covenant as well. She's equally committed and waiting, just as he has remained committed, even though he kind of messed it up. Because remember, the only way a woman could exit out of a marriage covenant at this point, that is, at the point of a betrothal, is through a divorce. Legally, they'd have to divorce to not go through with the rest of the marriage. So when Samuel arrives in Timnah, he tries to gain access to his wife-to-be's room. But her father stops Samson from entering. And this would have obviously confused him, because he had every right to go in. And so the father begins to explain why he's not letting him in. He begins with this apology. He says, you know, I really thought you hated my daughter intensely. The Hebrew sentence there is very interesting because there are no words for really or for intensely in the Hebrew. It literally reads, I thought, thought that you hate, hate my daughter. 
Because that's what Hebrew does. When Hebrew wants to emphasize, they simply repeat. And the general rule of thumb is, you say it once, it has a certain level of meaning. You say a word twice, it doubles the, or increases the level of meaning. And if you say a word three times, you're saying the most of something. That's just the general way Hebrew works. So it conveys that intensity by saying, you know, I thought, thought, that you hate, hate my daughter. So what they're saying is, when you left at the altar, you showed such great disrespect for my daughter. You dishonored her in probably the greatest way possible in that culture. And so given what you did, we had no reasonable expectation that you were ever coming back or that you would ever keep your vow. So we did the very next best thing we could. I gave your daughter to your friend, this unnamed guy that we've never really understood who he is, somebody that traveled with him, who knows. But in a sense, this is what I think the father's saying. I, I think what he's doing is trying to employ some version of the Liberate marriage principle. It's not the Liberate marriage principle. The Liberate marriage principle said that if you had a couple that's married and the father, the, the husband died before they could have any children, any heirs, then the brother, the unmarried brother of that deceased husband had to step into his place, marry that woman, and produce children for that that family line that was going to be without an heir. That's the Leverite, Leverite marriage requirement. It sounds to me like maybe they're trying to do something similar here. You know, he did, she didn't get him, so I'll, I'll, I'll give your friend to him. You know, there's something weird like that. But in the process, what did the father do? He caused his daughter to commit infidelity. She broke her covenant by marrying another. And she has now brought dishonor on Samson on her legitimate husband-to-be. Even the father's offer of this other prettier, younger daughter, whatever, doesn't change the fact that Samson's bride has been stolen and his covenant was broken by the actions of this family. Once again, he's angry. This is justifiable anger. He's been, he's been done wrong. But then he moves to taking revenge. And interestingly, here you notice he remarks that when he takes revenge this time, it will be justified, which is an implication of sorts, right? He's acknowledging that his earlier actions were the result of his own mistake. That is the bet. This time, though, he says, I'm truly innocent. This time, when I wreck your lives, I won't feel so guilty about it. Now, what's the justice required in this case? When you break covenants, what was expected? Well, there's really two potential outcomes here. First, Samson himself, he's no longer obligated to marry this woman. As Jesus explains in the Gospels, if a woman engages in sex during the betrothal period, she is committing an act of infidelity, and as a result, the husband is permitted to end the betrothal because she and he have not yet consummated the marriage, and meanwhile, the woman's gone off and become one flesh with somebody else. That excuses the first man from having to complete the marriage covenant. Secondly, Samson could expect to exact a price from the bride's family for their failure to keep their commitment to this covenant. Covenants, remember, were lifelong commitments. They still are. And they can only be ended by the death of one of those who made it. Paul says this in Romans 7, Romans 7, 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then if while her husband is living, she joins to another man, she shall be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Paul's point is, covenants don't break just because someone else says you can do it. Covenants only break when there's a death of the one who made the covenant. You may remember in the story of Mary and Joseph, when Joseph found Mary pregnant while they were in their betrothal period, before they were consummated in their marriage, he chose to try to divorce her quietly, we're told. 
He was doing that because he was saving Mary from the potential of being stoned to death for committing adultery, which was the penalty. Samson, though, not so generous. As his words indicate, he is prepared to take revenge, justifiably this time, to exact a price from the family. Verse 4, Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and turned the foxes tail to tail and put one torch in the middle between the two tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain along with the vineyards and the groves. I think I told you last week, there's a lot more crazy stuff coming in Samson's story. Well, here you go. Here's one of them right here. This is how he decides to exact his revenge from the family that had treated him wrongly in the marriage covenant. He decides he's going to destroy the Philistines' wheat fields. Remember, they're just getting ready to be harvested. So they've spent the year, half the year, preparing this important harvest, and everything's just ready to be taken, and he sees an opportunity to exact a price, a very serious loss for these people. That's their food supply. That's their financial security. Really, the whole village's way of life depended on this. And he's taking that from them, destroying it. And since he's only one person, he's just one guy, he devises this creative way to execute the plan. The text says he catches 300 foxes, but that's very unlikely. Because foxes are solitary animals. They don't run in packs. They don't live near each other. They mark out a certain area that's theirs, and the other foxes don't come into that area. So it's geographically not possible that he could have captured 300 foxes. He would have had to go so far and wide to get them that he wouldn't have been able to carry them all back to one place. It's just not practical. But that's because the word here doesn't mean foxes. The word in Hebrew can also be translated jackal. And a jackal is a small, wild dog. Dogs do run in packs. They are much easier to catch than foxes, I've been told. I don't have a lot of experience in catching either, but they're easier to track down and find. And they do run in large number in this area of Palestine. So it's more likely jackal. The point is not important to the story. My point is, though, if somebody were to point out to you later that this is improbable, you'll have the answer for them now, won't you? Still, we have to assume, having said all that, that his ability to capture 300 of anything in a relatively short period of time still reflects the Lord's special anointing upon him. I'm not diminishing that at all. In any event, he catches the jackals, as I'm going to call them. He then takes their bushy tails. They have bushy tails, just like foxes do. And he grabs two by the tail in one hand, is how it sounds to me, tail to tail. With his torch, he lights both tails, lets them go, grabs the next two, does the same thing, and he's lighting tails and fire. The tails probably burn down to the point where they just stop burning. The whole animal's not going to burn up. The hair on the tail's going to grow back, I hope, but it doesn't matter. I'm just trying to make you feel better. I'm just trying to make you feel better. Let's just be honest. But the effect of an animal with its tail on fire is what? They run like crazy, right? And that's his intent. What he's doing, of course, is he's letting them run into the fields of standing grain. Their tails flying around being lit up are going to put the, the grain on fire, which is the point. It's a pretty ingenious plan because if Samson had simply grabbed a torch or a couple of torches for that matter and tried to walk through the grain and do it himself, well, as soon as things started to burn, the people in the village would have noticed, hey, our grain's on fire, and they would have sent groups of men down there to put out the fire and to stop Samson. And even if he had superhuman strength, they could still have kept the fire from spreading. And so in this sense, in the plan he puts together, they wouldn't have a hope to stop it. 300 animals running every which way through the field is not going to be contained. 
And sure enough, the flame spread not only to the standing grain, but it says the shock. Shocks are, are grain that's already been cut and laid in stacks. So they're already in the harvest process. That's all going to get burned up. And it spreads so far and wide that it even goes into the vineyards and the fruit groves. It's a devastating loss for the Philistines. Now, what do you think is going to happen next? If you didn't read any further, what do you assume would happen next? Well, of course, the Philistines aren't just going to let this happen and just sit down and go, well, that was unfortunate. No, verse 6. Then the Philistines said, who did this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave him to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Boy, it just gets worse, doesn't it? They learn that the cause of their devastation is a broken marriage covenant. Now you get a sense here of how strongly the culture viewed covenants and the breaking thereof. Because they know Samson's part of the problem, but where do they start when they go about exacting vengeance themselves? They go right to the family that broke the covenant, essentially saying, it's your fault. Look what you did. Because it was such a serious thing that they would break this covenant. Now, at this point, aren't we all getting just a little uncomfortable with all the violence and all the things that are happening here? This is God's judge, after all. And you can see now the consequences that are falling out from everything he's done. It's just a cascading of sin. Even though there are some justifications behind the actions in some cases, you know, covenants and all, still, you have this chain of activity from Samson's decision to pursue a Philistine wife to his behavior at the wedding and the breaking of his Nazarite vows, to his carnal reasons in attacking the Philistines after they win the bet. He goes and he kills men, he comes back, to his abandonment of his wife. And then you have now the Philistines responding in kind. They betray his honor by cheating on the wager. They break the marriage covenant. Now they're killing people in revenge for what they did to him. And there's no innocent person here, certainly. And it's all a bit troubling. But I want you to step back for just a moment. I want you to consider what you already know about the society and the days in which all of this is taking place. Men doing what is right in their own eyes. The refrain of the book of Judges. These are people who are not guided by God's law. And I'm not just talking about the Philistines here. I'm talking about the Jewish people. They're not guided by the law God gave them. They are working out their own actions based on their own desires. The Lord has given them all that they need for godliness and the instruction, and they put it aside for centuries. They follow their hearts, and as they do that, they are drifting further and further away from the kind of godly lifestyle that God expected out of them when he gave them the covenant he did at Sinai. And even the men who were appointed by God to lead them into godliness, they themselves are growing less godly over time. And of course, surrounding them, you have the Philistines and other Gentiles who aren't godly in the least, So it's only natural to expect them to act in some of these ways. But the two worlds now are mixing together so fluidly that it's almost impossible anymore to tell who the good guys are. In fact, I'm not sure there are good guys in the stories that we're studying at this point. And as you see all of this happening, you should be drawn unavoidably to one conclusion. The evil of the human heart is an incurable disease. Incurable. Israel had the covenants. Israel had the prophets. Israel had the judges, the tabernacle, and on and on and on. They have the deck stacked in their favor in that regard. And all of it put together couldn't bring them to living and acting in righteous ways. They are sliding down a hill so fast that if God doesn't do something to interrupt the slide, they're going to be in the place that a downward slide sends you eventually. 
And even in times when God does step in forcefully, for a time, as he did after the Exodus, as he did under Joshua, as he did under certain judges we've studied so far, it only causes the people of Israel to toe the line briefly, just long enough until their memories fade of the person that God sends, and then they go right back, picking up where they left off in their sinning ways. And we don't even have to talk much about the Gentile nations. We know that they're so far from the truth, so far from God's righteousness, that without the revelation of the Lord directly into their heart, His directions, His representatives entering into their way of life, well, they have no hope to do anything that faith would result in, right? Friends, the conclusion we make is that unless and until God overcomes our ways, overcomes our nature, changes our heart, we will only be who we are naturally as we've inherited it from Adam. A sinner. As the saying has been repeated here many times, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners in our nature, in who we are. That is why, friends, we as a community of believers preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a fallen world. That's why we have that mission. Because it's the only solution For what ails them. Look around. Do you not think the life of the world we live in today is a perfect mirror image of the time of judges? Even if the places have changed and and some of the characteristics of the culture have changed, I don't think that matters in the big scheme of things. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes right now. They take whatever they think they like and they declare it to be okay. And of course they want everyone else to come in alongside them and agree with them that it's okay. And our judges the kind of people that rule over us in whatever capacity, whatever titles, they're ruling us according to their whims and their selfish desires, their political ambitions, whatever, and are not concerned with what is right. And even the people of God now looking at ourselves in the church generally, we're weak in many places. We're untaught. We are unwilling to discipline the flesh to the restraint of God's law. We don't think and act like that universally within the church very well anymore. Maybe pockets, maybe we like to think ourselves a little better than average here, I hope so. But even then, we're, we're really the exception that proves the rule, aren't we? And if I'm sounding a little cynical here, it's not cynicism, it's simply the recognition that it's always been this way. People romanticize the past in so many ways, right? Life was so much better in the past, eh, maybe, in some sense. But I think one thing has never been better, never will be better, and that is the nature of human hearts... The societies in which we live, the nature of what men and women try to achieve in their own power, those have always been the way it's been since Cain. And no law, no judge, no king is ever going to address those problems short of the judge, the king, and the law written in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit living in us who comes to us as we submit to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to make somebody different than the pattern we've seen in Judges. So the Philistines' decision to take revenge against Samson's wife gives opportunity for this cycle, this cascade of sin to just keep flowing because now that gives Samson another chance to retaliate. Verse 7, Samson said to them, Well, since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you. But after that I will quit. He struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter and he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Etam. It would seem that Samson has some kind of true love for his ride here because he's willing to carry this war further. But you notice he says, just one step further. 
I love that. He says this will be the end of it for him. It's so easy to promise that when you're assuming that you get to be the last one to act, isn't it? It's like the person who always says, well, I don't have to have the last word. And you say, okay. And they say, okay, fine. It's the last act of retribution as long as they don't respond again. Or so it would seem. So he goes, it says, to the territory of the Philistines, back in there, and he conducts a great slaughter against them. Now, once again, we're not overlooking the chain of sinful events here that brought us to this point. But also, I want you to remember, back in chapter 14, the Lord said he was allowing all of these things to happen so that he could bring out a good result. It's all part of his plan. And that plan was to bring Samson back to the point where he would fulfill his mission to conduct war against the Philistines. So it would seem, though it's a bunch of sinful stuff happening, here is that Romans 8.28 example again. God is turning these events to good. He's not declaring them to be good. He's turning them to a good outcome according to his intentions. And that outcome is, he wants Samson to begin breaking the hold that the Philistines have on the neck of Israel. And I can't stress enough that God always gets his way in our lives and in the larger events of the world we live in. And so, if we allow him the opportunity to work through our obedience, it'll all look a lot better than if we don't. But we aren't going to change his course, and we're not going to change the outcome he has preordained. Therefore, if we're stubborn, and we refuse to follow him in an obedient way, then we can leave him with no choice but to drive us from behind, as it were. We have the stories in Judges, I think, so that you can notice that the Lord's ways are to do as he wills through us, and the test becomes, do we do it the easy way or the hard way, as I've said here before? Don't force God's hand, because I can tell you right now, you won't like the result. Like Jonah, you're going to Nineveh one way or the other, either first class or fish class, but you're going there. And if our intent is to make it hard for him, it's going to come back around because he always wins. After Samson's fight, uh, you know, it says here that he's killed many of them. We don't know how many, but it was terrible, apparently. And then he retreats. Now, he has to hide because he knows the Philistines are going to respond. And I think the reason he's hiding, my intuition here, is that he has said, I'm not going to do any more of this, but he still wants to come out on top. So if he hides, well, there's nothing more they can do to him at this point. They've killed his bride. There's nothing left for him in, in the Philistine territory. As long as they can't find him, he's good. So he's hiding to stop the chain of activity, I think. He goes to a place called Etam, which is in an area of caves near Timnah. So he didn't go very far. He's hiding, kind of waiting for the whole thing to blow over. The problem is he stirred up a hornet's nest with the Philistines. And now we find out his Hebrew brothers, the rest of Judah, are not very happy with what he's done. But in the Lord's wisdom, I want you to see how the Lord conducts the events of the rest of this chapter and gets exactly what he said he was going to get back in chapter 14. Verse 9, Then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out to Lehi. The men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We've come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. You see the cycle there, right? They said to him, Well, we have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me. So they said to him, No, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands, yet surely we will not kill you. Then they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, 
And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flask that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. When he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand, and he named that place Ramath-Lehi. Like I said, it just keeps getting stranger. So here's what just happened. In response to Samson's brutal actions, the Philistines have moved up again into the hill country from where they normally live, down on the coastal plains. They've made that excursion back into Judah, to a place called Lehi. That's a place that's not clearly known today, but obviously not too far from the same area. And you see the game of tit-for-tat growing here, right? You did this to us, now we're going to come do this to you. And now it threatens to bring these two nations of people into a greater kind of conflict. But remember, we've said before, the Philistines essentially ruled this area, just as you heard in the text. Kind of the way Rome ruled over Palestine in the time of Jesus. You have that same kind of situation here where the Philistines could impose their authority virtually with impunity upon the Jewish people. So when a Jew like Samson steps into a Philistine village and kills a bunch of them, well, you know the Philistines are going to come back and exact revenge against the nation of Israel. So in this story, you see Samson's own people, having heard what happened, come looking for him, and they're coming to bind him and turn him over to their enemy. And Samson tries to make a story out of it, but they don't care really what the circumstances are. They would rather turn in their brother so they can have peace with their enemy than risk their lives in a warfare that could ultimately arrive at their freedom. That's why the Lord has raised up Samson in the first place, because they have to break a stronghold that the rest of the people have no interest in apparently trying to break. Samson's reluctance to obey led the Lord to bring about these events so that he could get the ball rolling. But looking at the Jewish leaders here from Judah, just for a moment, they're blind, aren't they, to the bigger picture? And they're spiritually weakened to the point where they don't want to even battle for their own freedom. They'd rather turn in their brother. They preferred their life of quiet bondage, at least over one of obedience to God. God's people can fall for that pattern at any moment. This pattern of complacency in which we enjoy a little bit of what we have over the potential of what God offers us if we would only obey. One observer of this part of 1 Samuel remarked, it is a sad fact of Christian experience that if you are a Christian committed to growing and maturing in Christ Jesus, you will often be hindered the most by other Christians who have become accustomed and accommodated to an anemic, wishy-washy spiritual life. I've seen that. I've seen the kind of ethic where you are working hard, you're moving somewhere, you're seeing the fruit of it, and it's making other people nervous. And their perspective is, I would rather you back down, sit down, shut up, and stop doing all that Christian stuff, because in my heart of hearts it makes me feel uncomfortable. But here's the thing, folks. That feeling, let's name it, it's called conviction. It's the feeling that, They're doing what I should be, but don't want to. You're going to deal with the Lord on that someday. Don't make the other person your enemy. For the Jewish leaders, that's Samson. Samson's messing up a good thing. Now, if this pattern sounds a little familiar, it should to you because it's a picture of Christ. Do you see that in this text? We said that Samson is a picture of Christ at multiple places along in the story. Here's one of them. Samson pictures Christ's arrival to rescue his people, Israel, from the oppression of the Gentiles. 
Now, unlike Samson, Christ embraced his mission wholeheartedly, of course. But like Samson, Christ was persecuted and betrayed by his own people into the hands of the enemy against their own best interests because they would rather have had the compromised life they had under Roman rule than they would have the freedom that was offered in the kingdom. And we're learning another lesson here about the evil hearts of men and women. That is, we will often prefer the sinful lives we have become comfortable with, even in the misery that our sin may bring us, rather than take the risk of obedience to God. But it is the nature of our hearts to stay in sin until God loosens that bond and moves us out. Speaking of God working in our hearts, Samson sees, I think, an opportunity here by the Spirit to escape both his brothers and the Philistines at the same time by playing into their act just long enough. He asks in verse 12, Okay, if I give you the chance to bind me, do you promise you just won't kill me? They agree. Okay, we'll bind you, but we won't kill you. And then he agrees to go with them on those terms because he knows he has the strength, or at least it seems he presumes to know, that the Lord will give him the strength to break those bonds when the time comes. This is, I think, the high point in his spiritual life in the story of Judges. For all his stumbling about so far, for all his mistakes, you should be encouraged by the fact that he's showing patience with his brothers. I mean, they're just saying we're going to turn you in and he's not fighting them. Secondly, the fact that he has so much confidence in the Lord's faithfulness that he is sure that through it all there will be deliverance in this, he can go with confidence. What if God had not given him the supernatural strength to break those bonds? He's faithfully expecting that outcome. And so he puts himself in this very vulnerable position. Here again, picture of Christ. Samson pictures a man of God endowed with all power, yet willing to submit to an unfair fate for the good of his people. Christ, remember, he had the strength to resist any attempt to bind him, much less to kill him. As the scriptures tell us, angels could have been sent down to rescue him at any moment, and yet he refrained to ask for that because he was obeying the will of the Father. As it's often been said, the nails didn't hold him to the cross, and that is to say, no one forced Jesus onto that cross. For if his will had not been in line with doing it, nothing could have put him on the cross. Nothing was strong enough to force him to do it. But by obedience, he desired to win a salvation for his people, so he willingly submitted to capture, trial, torture, and death. In Samson's case, he won't face death, not yet. But he's brought, bound before the Philistines. They shout, it says here, in anticipation, I assume, of killing him, because that's what they want to do. But at that moment, he breaks his bonds. It says like flask being burned. If you've ever seen a hemp or something that's very fibrous, and you light it, it just goes, poof, it's gone, right? And it's in that sense. He just began to move it, and they just came right off. And he does it, I assume, in a moment that catches the Philistines off guard. And then, the most amazing, curious, weird part of the whole story this is the latest, most crazy thing. The implement that he chooses to use in his battle is a jawbone of a donkey. He notices a dead donkey that had only just died. Once again, his Nazarite vows prohibit him from touching a dead body, but he'd already broken those vows with the lion, so why not? So without hesitation, he grabs the jawbone of this donkey, but in reality, the jawbone had nothing to do with the win of the battle. Jawbones are not lethal weapons. Right? In effect, Samson killed a thousand men with his bare hands. I mean, basically, which is in itself supernatural and amazing. But the jawbone is there for a reason other than to assure him the victory. The jawbone is there as a picture of something for us. Samson named the place in English, it would be Jawbone Hill. That's what he named it in memorial to the victory. And at the very end of what I read, he coins a riddle. He must have been a pretty good riddler. 
And if you want to get the full sense of the wordplay in this riddle, you could restate it this way in English. With the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in a mass. Literally, that would be more of how it turned into a riddle for them. That The wording sounded more like that to them. It's totally legitimate. There was no joke in that. That was serious, right? Now back to the fundamental question. Why then the detail of the jawbone? It's a picture, right? A picture of Christ. Now you're going to say, well, you're going to have to work pretty hard to get this one in front of me because I don't see it coming. Well, let's start. Samson is winning a great victory here by means of the cheek of a dead donkey or ass, which is an unclean animal in Jewish law. And it's unclean even when it's alive, never mind when it's dead. Likewise, Scripture teaches that Jesus was smitten or struck on the cheek in his death on Calvary. That phrase, to strike on the cheek, means to be treated with contempt. Furthermore, the jawbone or the cheek of the donkey, we're told, was of a new death, because the word for fresh in Hebrew is literally the word moist. So it's a moist jawbone, not to be graphic. But the point being, this body had not yet undergone decay. Neither did Jesus' body undergo decay in dying to win the victory. And the bone was from a donkey because, as I said, the donkey is unclean and Christ won us a great victory through an unclean death. Jesus became unclean in the sense that Scripture said he became sin for us on the cross, though he knew no sin himself, doing so to become the righteousness of God for us. Finally, the jaw is connected to the mouth physically so as to suggest that the victory is ultimately won by the word of God, supernaturally. And at the end of the battle, when he disposes of it, another picture of Christ is given to us in that sense. Just as Christ declared on the cross at the point at which he had won the victory, it is finished, never again to have to suffer for the defeat of sin. Similarly, once the defeat of this army had taken place, he could cast aside the jawbone for the tool has done what it was required to do. It will never be needed again. All of these details remind us that Samson is acting in ways that God intends so that he might remind us of his son and do as God desired. But on a backdrop of sin and mistakes and selfishness and brutality and all the rest, not God's heart, clearly. What do we take from that? Well, that the methods that God uses can get messy because the people God works with are messy. Because all he has is sinful flesh. If he waited for the sinless people of the world to come to him so that he could work with them, nothing would have been done apart from what he did through the only sinless man, Christ. Right? So it's natural, not optimal, certainly not in keeping with God's heart, but natural nonetheless, that as God moves among his people to accomplish godly things, the process, the recipe looks pretty messy from time to time. But the joy of serving Christ and the blessing of being available to him in obedience is that he may start with a mess, but he won't leave you in a mess. You become someone different than you started as you yield to his spirit and as you listen to his word, which is why we do what we do here every Sunday. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for working with messy people. Because each of us, Father, know in our heart of hearts There's so much about our life that is not like you. Things we do and say and think repeatedly sometimes, despite our best desire to want to serve you in obedience, Father. Nonetheless, sin raises its ugly head again in our life, and here we are. We don't make excuses for it, Father, for your word doesn't give us the opportunity to do that. And we aren't content with it, Father, for you've given us a spirit who convicts us.
and demonstrates to us how far we have to go in being Christ-like. But Lord, you don't just bring us those things to discourage us. You add as well the power of the Spirit in us, just like you gave the Spirit to Samson, so that we might achieve supernatural things. We may not lift buildings or destroy people with, with small objects, and, and nor do we wish to. But what we do, Father, is just as miraculous. We speak in, in new ways. We think in new ways. We act in new ways, godly ways, because you inspire that in us through the Spirit, by the Word that teaches us. And, Father, that's a miracle every time it happens. I thank you, Father, that you are working to bring us to somewhere better, even as we seek to serve you in our weakness. And we ask, Lord, you wouldn't, we wouldn't be content with us saying no, that you'd continue to woo us to the right place, Discipline us as needed and love us all the way. For that's what you do, Father. And you do that because of your Son and His righteousness given to us by faith. Thank you, Lord, for that gift. Send us out of here, Father, renewed in a confidence that as messy as we can be, you can do great things through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.